Hey everyone, I'm Sina Hagiha and welcome to First Serve. The path to live a fulfilled and abundant life is to learn, grow and serve and that is what this podcast is all about. We will have guests on the show who are utilising their skills to make a positive impact to our world. Together we can gain a lot of insights, expand our knowledge and apply our learnings to serve others to the best of our abilities. Today we have Dr. Keith Grimes with us who is the Clinical Director at Babylon Health. I'm really looking forward to this discussion on how artificial intelligence is disrupting and revolutionising the healthcare sector. Keith, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's great to speak to you today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So before we dive into how artificial intelligence is being applied in healthcare, I want to know a little bit more about your journey and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. So, um, so essentially, like the short version of who I am is that I am a geeky general practitioner. Um, so the story of how I got to where I am just now is that um, from a medicine point of view, so I'm a doctor, um, I'm a general practitioner. Um, so for people outside the UK, that might be known as a family practitioner or, or a, an internal physician. Uh, and I've been that for well, since 2000, um, I went to medical school in Aberdeen. I did some training up in Scotland, then did my GP training in Edinburgh after a bit of time in Australia. And then in 2000, uh, finished my GP training. And I've been a general practitioner within the NHS pretty much ever since. Um, mostly interested in things like urgent care. So um, if you're if you become unwell suddenly or out of hours, I'm the sort of doctor that you might see. It's not quite an uh, accident emergency, although I have done A&E work, uh, but it's that kind of thing. So as a doctor, I've done that, you know, uh, and I still do that just now, uh, although not as, as much. I've done that since 2000. Um, but the thing that really kind of lights my fire, the thing that I really love is technology. And as long as I can recall, I've always really loved technology, even since being a child and, you know, playing with my computer back in the early 80s. And uh, and even when I went to medical school, like it, I, I, I was dead set to want to go and do computer science, um, but I did better than I expected in my uh, exam results. And then at that point, I was starting to think, well, what should I do? And I thought, well, maybe actually, you know, it's either medicine or law. And I thought, well, I could never be a lawyer, so I'd like to be a doctor um, and, and went into it. But even when I went to medical school, it was it was really about trying to use technology in healthcare. Um, and I constantly tried through medical school and then even as a junior doctor. But back in the mid to late 90s, um, technology was seen as being kind of important, but there was no obvious path for this. And then as you headed into the noughties uh, within the NHS, there was some slight changes with technology, but but not a great deal. Um, it was only around about 2010, 2011, um, that we started to see some major changes, at which point I started to work in the company that I was working in at the time to deal with remote care. It was mostly about social care, you know, like uh, home alarms and stuff like that. But I was also working in a walk-in center. But then um, as time went on, I realized that I wanted to do more for my patients with digital health technology, particularly smartphones, apps, uh, remote monitoring, and also the use of virtual reality, which I, we may get into as well, I suppose. Um, and uh, But found it really, really difficult to do in the NHS. You know, I even got to the point that I was commissioning services and I was a an innovation lead, but but the NHS is, was, and to a degree it's changed, but it still is very resistant to change. There's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, and it got 
more and more frustrating and the work got very, very hard and it led me to actually burn out back in 2017. I had to take some time off. Um, and uh, as I was recovering from that, when I came back and I thought, look, I really have to pursue what I'm passionate about. And uh, along that, around about that time, Babylon got in touch. I'd done some like little bits of work for them before and they wanted to welcome me on board. And uh, when the opportunity came in the middle of 2018, I jumped on board and I've been there ever since. Wow, that's an incredible journey. And it's amazing to see that you're pursuing your passions. So what was that shift like from being, let's say, a traditional GP to becoming more heavily involved with technology? Was it a smooth transition because you already had that interest in technology from a young age? Or yeah, what was that experience like shifting away from your day-to-day experiences working as a general practitioner? It was, um, it was very interesting. Uh, some bits were absolutely amazing. Like, I, I still remember the first day that I started in Babylon. We have company-wide stand-ups, and outside COVID, we were having them inside the main office. At that point, you know, you could pretty much fit everyone inside the same room. And I remember standing up, and at, at that point, when we joined, everyone got to say a little piece about, you know, why they'd come on. And I, I stood up and I said, you know, today's the, you know, the first day in 20, 28 years. I'd been waiting 28 years to get to that point. And I wasn't lying. I, I genuinely felt that I'd kind of found my tribe. This is um this is a common thing that happens in digital health is that, you know, people feel that they've got this real passion to do something with technology. Um and and, and they and they have this sort of understanding of how, how technology can help healthcare. But it isn't shared by a lot of people. So you spend a lot of time feeling like the odd one out, you know, like people say, Oh, it's nice, you know, I use email or I've seen this, you know, that would be a good idea. And you spend all your time saying, Oh no, 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 but it could be so much better than that. It's not just about email and video, it's about everything else. And when I got to Babylon, I genuinely felt that I'd I'd kind of come home in some respect. So it was it was really Lovely. And, and, and one of the nice things about being at Babylon is that um, Ali Parsa, our founder, has uh, in the company assembled a, an absolutely fantastic like group of people. That's the nice thing is that I get to work with really brilliant scientists and engineers and user researchers and so on. Um, so it, it was the start almost of like a sort of education as well. I, I was... You know, I was I was a quite a senior GP in, in in the NHS. I was working at a CCG or these commissioning groups to help commission services. And uh, you know, in some ways, I'd kind of made it to the point at which everyone you know everyone has said this is what you're aiming for. In fact, that's part of the reason I kind of got burnt out because I'd kind of made it, but I wasn't happy. Um, having made the change uh, made that big difference. Now, all that said. Um, the NHS is a very particular place to work. And um, when you're in the NHS, you really can't conceive almost of working anywhere else. You know, In fact, the idea of working outside the NHS, particularly if you're a doctor, you, you come out and you're like, oh my God, am I still a doctor? If I don't work in the NHS, am I still a doctor? Am I still able to care for patients? And of course it's true, but you've spent so much time thinking one way that to, to change can be quite a transition. So it took a little bit of time to get my head around that. Um, it's something that uh, some of my colleagues found very difficult. You know, some people were very unhappy with me having made the change. I got quite a lot of criticism sometimes online uh, for it as well. Um, and even now, you still see within the UK a lot of people, um, you know, unhappy with the idea of non-NHS, non-public sector services being involved in healthcare. But I suppose what you have to realise is that the UK is next to unique in the world 
in how it does its healthcare. Like everywhere else has some other combination of uh, private involvement and delivers fantastic care in many places as well. It doesn't all have to be like America. <laughs> and uh, so, so it takes a while for you to kind of get, get your head around things. Um, and, uh, and that's where I find myself now. I'm working with brilliant people. I'm in a position where I'm learning an awful lot every single day, skills that I never knew I'd, I think I'd need, um, but ultimately still allow me to be a doctor, but just in a new way. And that's um that's a real privilege. That's that, that's something I absolutely love. Yeah. So it seems to me like Babylon has really provided you with a platform to um, express some of the ideas that you've had in your experiences as a doctor. Really give you that freedom to implement some of those ideas. But what would you say were your biggest pain points as a GP that you wanted to tackle with digital healthcare? Yeah. So, so I suppose there's a, there's a few in there. One of the things, one of the things that's very hard about general practice is that we perform a really, really important function. We're the sort of front door or the gate to the NHS that, you know, I think one of the statistics I remember seeing, and it's maybe a couple of years old, is that every year in the NHS, there's 360 million consultations. 300 million of them are in general practice, you know, like massive amounts of it happens in general practice. Um, so it's very, very busy. And if you're in the UK and you've probably struggled to see your GPs as well, and then you go in and they've got like 10 minutes, they're always very, very harassed. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes the, the continuity, the ability to see the same person works brilliantly. But if you're having to wait weeks between appointments, you know, when things are unwell, it, it's hard. And so I found, I found that, and the thing that kind of got me, ground me down in the end, and I'm sure other doctors have it too, is that I, I got to this point where I felt that, Every consultation was about how, not how brilliant I could make that consultation. It wasn't about how, like, excelling, like delivering the highest quality. It became, how can I compromise the least? Like, I, I've only got like eight minutes to see this person. I have to help them and it has to be safe and I have to do the best that I can, but I can't do everything. And it felt like a conveyor belt. And I, you know, I didn't get, people don't get into things to just make do. You know, I really wanted to excel and I found it very, very hard um, to do that. And at Babylon, what I've found is that I've been given the kind of time and the opportunity to really double down and say, look, how can I do things in an, in an excellent way? But Babylon's not unique in that regard, but I, I certainly felt it there. I was given the, t the space to do it. Um, I was given an environment where I work with people that have amazing other skills as well. I mean, what, a really good example of that is the user researchers. Um, user researchers obviously spend their time speaking to, to people to understand what their fundamental drives are and, and how to help them. Um, it's actually kind of similar to medicine as well when you're talking to patients, but they see it from a different angle. And it's been a real joy to sort of have my perspective change, you know, because if I can look at the medical problems of people, but a different way, it allows me to be a better doctor too. So I think that was the that was the big change between my NHS working uh, and, and coming into Babylon. And I also feel that I've drifted a little bit away from your original question. So remind me if I've drifted too far. No, I think you've answered it. My understanding is that if you want to do your work effectively as a doctor, um, you want to have all that information at hand and you want to make the most out of the short amount of time you have with the patient. So it's also really hard to make those on-the-spot decisions as well. So digitalizing it, having all that information, all that screening done beforehand makes you a more effective doctor. And you can actually 
serve your patients at a higher level? Because I can imagine as a GP, you're spending a lot of time probably doing admin work rather oh, than gosh. actually. <laughs> yeah, Chase, chasing up <laughs> referrals and, and things like that. Yeah, and that's, um, you know, it's part of the work. Um, but um, but you think, well, you know, but I'm in, I've spent years training, you know, I've got a particular set of skills, like Liam Neeson says, I've got a particular set of skills, uh, and it's potentially not just phoning around trying to get an appointment. Um, I think um, the other thing as well, I, you know, there was the first part about this sort of compromise. The second thing was that I felt very, um, I felt very unhappy that um, I was restricting a patient's ability to care for themselves or have care the way that they wanted. Um, that came up an awful lot. Like, and, and, and at its absolute simplest, why are we in a world where a patient patient's notes aren't immediately accessible to them? Like, you know, this is this is information about them uh, or you. Um, if I want to know what my blood pressure was, if I want to know where my chicken pox was when I was a kid, if I want to look at my notes, surely I should be able to do that. Now, there's there are complexities to it, of course, about security of access, about some content sometimes can conceivably be harmful to patients and so on. But that's small stuff. Like, you know, when I go into hospital, I want the doctor or nurse who sees me to have all the information that went before, and it should be there, and it, and it wasn't. Um, patients shouldn't have to take a whole day off work to come and physically see me for something that could be done over the phone or done by email or done by WhatsApp or, you know, done by TikTok, whatever, you know, we, 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 there's, there's different ways of communicating. And I was using those different ways of communicating everywhere else. And then I'd come to work and then you stopped it. Like <laughs> you, you, you had your world outside medicine and then your world inside medicine. And it just didn't make any sense to me. And it was the same for the patients, you know, they'd be fantastically managing their world digitally, but then it got to medicine. Nope. You know, come in and pick up your prescription. Come in and pick up your sick note. Come in and see me every three months for this. You know, now things have changed in the last year, but that that was a real frustration. And the idea the idea that we could actually do something about it that when you had an idea and said and it turned into yes, let's give that a go, as opposed to no, we can't do that. That was another big change that I noticed. Yeah, because I think for me, going back a few years now to when I was younger we all had a family doctor and it was relatively easy to get an appointment. You'd see the same doctor every single time. And, and that was the case for my parents and my brother as well. But over the last couple of years, I've noticed that I have to get up early in the morning at like 6am. And if you want to see your GP, it's on a first come first serve basis. You normally have to queue and you're seeing a different GP each time. So if it's a reoccurring issue, that GP may not have all the history or all the conversations that took place. And I'm a user of Babylon, so I know the difference it's made to my life and how quickly I can get hold of a GP, even within minutes if the time is available, without leaving my house and doing it kind of on my terms. It's just made such a big difference in terms of accessibility and speed. And I think for a patient that's like the best customer service that you can get yeah and and you, like that's a real like, i'm really glad that you're having that experience and um that's exactly one of the things that we aim for um and before i go into the next bit like 
standard NHS general practice absolutely has it hard. You know, it gets very, very difficult. Uh, and quite often, like continuity, the ability to sort of see the same doctor and develop that relationship is really important. But um, because of the increasing kind of administrative pressures and the things that we have to do as, as GPs, it becomes very, very hard to say, well, I, I want that. But I also want to be able to seen, be seen quite quickly because, you know, the waits get longer. And then you end up in a situation where you either wait ages to see the same doctor or you just get whoever you want early on. Now, sometimes you may be happy with that, but sometimes you may want to have the continuity. So we all, whether in the NHS or Babylon, have to work, you know, work towards that. But one of the things that's really important about what you've said is that um, quite often that description, the ability to see your doctor on your own terms, to be able to, you know, call from home or, you know, use video chat if you need to or whatever, is is kind of looked down on in some respects because they say, well, you know, but that's just consumerism. That's just like, you know, that's what a patient kind of wants, but what they need is actually to be seen physically and so on. But, but what that's doing is that's really minimizing something that's critically important for people, which is the ability to be able to be seen. So, you know, say, for example, you, you have a, something that doesn't need to be seen face to face, and you can factor it into your day, that reduces the threshold for you acting on it and not pushing it down the line or having to take loads of time off, which means that things get done in time. Um, if you had to book an appointment and had to wait two weeks, then those little things, uh, which are still important, might get put off. And many of those little things are little things that nothing would ever happen. But sometimes those little things are really important, either because they become something serious, or they're very important to you. So Making it convenient to a patient isn't simply just about something nice. It's got a really fundamental importance about delivering safe care. And also, you've got accessibility issues. You know, How can it be right that we force people with mobility problems or visual problems or hearing problems or mental health issues and you force them, like people with anxiety is a classic example, you know, they, they need to speak to someone, you force them to play the lottery on a phone call first thing in the day, and then they have to come in and wait, and then they may be in a busy waiting area, the entire time very stressful, you know, that can be really distressing. So there's a huge group of people that actually benefit from this remote care. Um, you don't want to stop people getting face-to-face -face care if it's needed, that's absolutely critical. Um, but sometimes you don't need to see someone face-to-face. And the patient may not want to, you know. So, so giving people the options, giving the people all the options, is really is really key. Yeah, and I think especially during this pandemic, I was speaking to family members who are doctors, and they were mentioning that the number of patients coming in were decreasing because of the fear of you know leaving the house and going to the hospital or going to see the doctor. So, I think having that remote access just gives people another pathway to get seen no matter what the situation is in the world yeah i think i think the world has been like the world of medicine has been forever changed i mean it's obviously been forever changed everyone's been changed by what's happening with covid but in healthcare um it's changed very substantially very quickly and there was there was a good statistic which backed this up it doesn't cover everything, but uh, in November 2019, around 3% of UK general practices offered video consultations. And by summer 2020, it was over 99%. So it hadn't happened for years, and all of a sudden, bang, it happened very, very quickly. Now, the pandemic required it, of course. You know, we had to see people remotely. Um, but a lot of the barriers that were put in place 
were kind of false barriers. They were people were just very risk averse. You know, uh, I, I remember being told that video consultations should never happen and they were dangerous. And um, uh, you know, we'll never adopt them in general practice, or you know, or they were medical legally, you know, diabolical. I remember that even as recently as like three, four years ago. Um, and of course, they've been included now. Now, you know, they're not always used. A video consultation isn't always necessary. Um, but the option is there now. And now we're seeing more in the way of messaging, you know, like the ability to be able to fire off a question or just say, look, you know, I, 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 this, this thing's coming up. Do I need to see you or can I get it sorted out myself? It fits into people's lives while we're restricted and large parts of it are going to persist. We have to, I suppose the task for everyone now is to work out what bits needs to stay, what needs need to change back, what changes do we need to help improve it even more. And I noticed we haven't really talked about what Babylon does and what it actually <laughs> yeah. is. I know you're familiar with it and I'm familiar because I'm a user of the service. But for our listeners, can you give an overview of what Babylon Health does and and how it potentially differs from other healthcare providers out there? Yeah, sure. So um, it, it starts with the, the sort of mission statement of Babylon is to put an accessible and affordable health service in the hands of every person on earth. Um, that's the mission that brings a lot of people in to the company. And, uh, and how we do it, or what we do, is that we are a global company, originally based in London, but we have, you know, we're based uh, internationally now. Um, and we provide uh, uh, clinical services. Um, uh, in the UK, we have a digital first primary care or general practice service uh, called within the NHS called uh, GP at hand. Uh, but we also have a private service as well. Um, and that is, you could person can use the smartphone. They're able to book appointments, have a video or audio consultation with a doctor 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Uh, that's within the NHS or outside um, the NHS. We also have nurses, physios, mental health team, pharmacists, the whole, the whole shooting match. So that's uh, one corner of the work that we do. Uh, but the other side of the work that we do is that we're a digital health technology company that provides AI-powered products, app-based app, app -based services, to help people with some of the activities that are involved in healthcare. So we have a symptom checker that allow people to report their symptoms and get an understanding of where, who they need to be seen by and when. Uh, maybe some information about what the potential causes might be. Um, we can also give, we have a, uh, a service called Health Check where people can use a chat interface to, to talk a little bit about their sort of their life and their risk factors. It gives them an idea as to what risk factors might need attention and how they uh, influence your, your, your likelihood of having um, certain diseases. Uh, we also have Monitor, which allow people to track some of their wearables and their, 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 you know, their symptoms and some of the some things like step count and weight and so on, and then look at it, uh, uh, reflect back. And, um, and we integrate all of these. That's the really important thing about Babylon is that we're, we're looking to provide an integrated service, not just primary care, uh, but also helping people care for themselves as well. So uh, this, is, this is, serves our mission and something that we're, uh, we're really growing and excited about. And your job title is AI Clinical Director. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Because a lot of people may not be familiar with that title. What yeah. do you do on a day-to-day yeah, 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 basis? Yeah, sure. Or what does your team do on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, no, happy, to, happy to explain. It's, it's actually, it's, even the title itself is interesting because um, 
it's a kind of new type of new type of role, a new type of job. But we'll break it down a little bit. So, so my title is a clinical digital health director. Was clinical AI now clinical digital health? So, clinical. I'm a doctor, you know, uh, and I'm a clinician. So, other clinicians might be nurses, pharmacists, and so on. So, uh, I understand healthcare. I practice healthcare. Uh, digital health and AI, well, that's the technology side of things. So artificial intelligence um, has multiple definitions and, and people understand it in lots of different ways. The, the meaning that I often use is that artificial intelligence is the use of technology to automate anything that might otherwise require a human brain to do it. Um, so it can be something as simple as just like automating repetitive processes, uh, automating decision making, um, all the way through to, you know, technologies like uh, deep learning, uh, where um, when you look at large amounts of data, computers uh, or algorithms are able to come up with, you know, classify, sort of sort the data and, and identify patterns that might otherwise not be visible. And that allows for things like speech recognition, uh, face recognition, uh, and so on. So, so th that's that technology. So you've got those technologies and the clinical side of things. So what do I do and what do the people at Babylon do is that we're clinical subject matter experts. We understand the challenges and the problems with uh, delivering healthcare. And we look at how to use those technologies to create solutions and, and build them and test them and make sure they're safe and, and, and improve them. That, that's basically what we do. You know, we, we work with people that help build this to create the answers. And for that, you need a vast amount of data, right, to build or to really utilize AI. So how are you capturing all of that data? What does that process look like? Yeah, yeah. So you're right. I mean, the, 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 the reason that AI um, is, uh, is big right now is that a number of things have happened to support it. And broadly speaking, two things. Number one is that you have data available in like high quality data in a large amount. And uh, it's definitely true that since the year 2000 and even up until now, that the amount of data that we're all generating, not just in healthcare, but everywhere is, you know, exponentially rising. So we have very large amounts of generally speaking, high quality data, sometimes structured data, you know, so we understand what kind of data it is and how it's to be used. Uh, we have a very good network infrastructure, so you can move that data around quite easily. And we have processing power. We have computers that work exceptionally quickly. And we built a world where that computing power is available either on your phone or desktop, or if you need it for AI, and you need quite a lot of power for that, that computing power can be put in the cloud. It can be put online and essentially accessible to anyone. So you've got loads of data, you've got loads of computing power, AI is now possible. And, um, and that's, that's what's led to the explosion of this right now. So your question was about, like, so how do you use this data for healthcare? Well, there's, um, there's a number of different sources for it. Uh, and some of them we use at Babylon, some of them are examples used elsewhere. Um, so a good example of it would be that in some hospital records or in general practice records or in the UK with big, big data stores like Biobank, we've got lots and lots of data. And you can identify the data that you might want to train an algorithm on. Um, and then you can, you can train this uh, algorithm, then you can compare it, uh, you can test it against a sort of reserved set of data, and you can see how its performance is compared to that, and then you can use it for the real world. So um, that's a very simplified version of it. But in essence, that's the sort of thing that's done when you're training um, an AI to, for example, read a chest x-ray. You know, what you'll do is you'll have a large data set with hundreds of thousands often 
of uh, x-rays and they're labeled you know sometimes they're labeled by humans or they have to be labeled by humans sometimes they don't need to be labeled but you know you'll say that this of this 100,000 x-rays you know these this many have pneumonia this many don't and then you allow the um, algorithm to work on that and then that then identifies features that may or may not be visible to the human um, to help then say on this training data this is a chest x-ray with pneumonia this isn't then what you then do is you can then test it on x-rays that it hasn't seen before and see how it performs and then you can use that that's a that's one example of how it might be done um, other examples of how it might be done is that you can and one of the ways that we use at babylon is that you take clinical subject matter experts people like myself and um you we we spend time to try and uh like turn our expert knowledge into something that's essentially machine readable we use we use our expert understanding we use that to train train the machines or uh we can go to uh medical research and we can look at epidemiological data you know large studies that tell us the the association between symptoms and diseases and so on and we can use that information to build what are called probabilistic models um so uh they they understand the likelihood of um, the likelihood of a person, a good example might be, uh, you know, what's the likelihood of a person might have lung cancer? Um, you can tell, you can say, well, how old is that person, and um, what gender are they, or what, you know, what what, what sex were they at birth? You can say, well, their risk is a certain amount. Then you then you start adding things like, do they smoke? Have they got any symptoms? And and each of those, you can look at studies to find the strength of the association between that. And when you get hundreds and maybe even thousands, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of those, you can start to make quite um, good estimations of the likelihood of certain symptoms. So that's that's part of what we do at Babylon as well with the symptom checker. It's slightly beyond the ability of people to to be able to do that calculation explicitly, but it's something that machines, particularly cloud-based machines, can do. And then could you also put in preventative measures if you feel that someone is leading down that path that mm -hmm. they can take certain actions to prevent yeah. certain illnesses as well? Yeah, absolutely. So um, again, you know, what does AI do? AI helps automate some of the things that might otherwise require a human brain to it. So, uh, so say, for example, you came into me as a doctor and um, we were just having a conversation, you know, you were booking in and then I found out that you you were a smoker, let's say. I mean, you know, we're just using that as an example. Now, I mean, there's not many doctors that will ever tell you that smoking is good. Um, but if you then told me and said, yes, but I've got quite a strong family history of lung cancer and uh, COPD, which is a lung condition, then I might start saying, well, you know, you're already at an increased risk of having these diseases, plus you add smoking, that's going to increase your risk even more. So I might say to you and say, well, look, um, smoking isn't good, but for you, it's even less good. So you might want to prioritize stopping smoking over something else, you know. And then but a doctor will then also say, well, what's important to you? Um, you know, what, what's on your mind right now? What, you know, do you want to be fit? Just, you know, maybe you, you actually you're more interested in losing or gaining weight or whatever it is. Um, so you'll have that conversation. Now, what you can do with these models as well, and with health check is something similar, is the person can, can feed in all their, you know, they can answer their questions. And then we can come back and say, well, um, compared to like, on the basis of the information that you provided, compared you know compared to a similar population, a person of the same age and same uh, sex, um, your risk is higher or lower, you know, over the next five years. So 
if I was comparing you to, like, if you said you were smoking and your risk of lung cancer over the next five years would probably still be very low, don't worry, but, uh, but if you smoked, it would be higher. So we might highlight and say, you know, actually, this increases your rate of having this. And if you were to stop smoking, you could reduce your risk. Then you as a person can then say, well, I'm not so worried about that. What I'm more worried about is this, or I am worried about it. Um, and you can start considering which step to take next. So it's that kind of thing that's really exciting to do, to put the power back in people's hands, to allow them to run these sort of mini experiments and say, well, you know, what's what's my main worry just now? What do I have time to do? What What do I have the commitment to do? What's going to make the biggest difference? That sort of thing often requires a specialist input. And with AI in the form that we take it, it can allow people to start making those, you know, start considering what steps they might want to take. In association with their doctors as well, we don't ask people to make like huge lifestyle changes on the basis of that alone. But it's, start, it's, it's information for people to start to weigh up their decisions. So that's another thing I wanted to touch upon is, would AI ever replace doctors completely? Or is it more like a supplementary tool for doctors because i know a few doctors might be a bit skeptical around ai um like some of them may not support it and think that medicine is more an art than a science and you can't teach ai everything because there is that human element involved so what are your thoughts on that yeah, I mean, the short answer is that um, I don't think AI is going to be replacing doctors or nurses or anyone anytime soon. Um, it's certainly an awfully long way off if it ever happens. And the reason for it is that AI is like a toolkit. Um, and I think that what will happen is that AI can be exceptionally good, like way better than humans at some things, but those things tend to be very, very narrow. And a good, a good way, a good comparison is a, like a calculator and an accountant, you know, there definitely was a time when accountants didn't use spreadsheets and calculators, you know, they'd use ledgers and, you know, all that kind of things. And then calculators came along. Um, and calculators made the act of adding and subtracting and doing all of this much, much easier. And then spreadsheets came along and made it even easier again. But you haven't seen accountants disappear. You've seen some elements of what accountants do go to people at home. But for the most part, accountants appear to be doing quite well. They also appear to be using calculators and spreadsheets an awful lot. And I would argue that if you went to an accountant and they said, oh, I'm an old, you know, I'm an old school accountant. I don't use calculators. I don't use spreadsheets. I do it all by hand. You'd probably be like, that's pretty strange. And uh, I, I'm not sure I'm going to be comfortable in using this particular accountant. Right now, um, doctors and nurses already use forms of AI. A good example is prescribing decision support. You know, when I'm seeing a patient, um, uh, there's a big database running in the background. So when I choose a medication for them, it'll automatically pull up information as to what the dose is and how often to take it, and also any interactions. Um, now, I'll try and remember the big ones, but lots of the small-grained interactions will be like highlighted by the computer. So it's already an indispensable part of the way I work right now. I think what you'll find is that over time, AI will help augment a healthcare professional, a doctor or a nurse's ability to provide care. So like a calculator, like a, like a calculator to an accountant, like um, you know, prescribing support right now, it will be in place. And it will probably be there along the lines to help us understand more about risk. So when you come in and see the doctor, They'll know some of the information about you, but they may not know all of the information that's happening outside the doctor's surgery. With your consent and with the right technology in place, it could start tracking that and saying, 
actually, you know, you say you're feeling fine, but I've noticed over the last few months that your step count has been going down and your weight's been going up. Um, and at that point, the AI can pick up that pattern and suggest that that might slightly change or increase your risk of developing certain conditions. What I would then do is you would then go, all right, well, look, but is this important to you? Is this something that you want to do anything about? If not, you know, should we come back to it? That's the human part. So AI plus the humans gives the best outcome. It's like that in computer chess, you know, um, you know, the best players in the world are actually the players with computers, not computers or players. Um, and over time, the, the answer is like, will AI replace humans or human doctors? The answer is probably not, but human doctors that use AI will replace human doctors that don't use AI. I think that's that's maybe a, a, another way of doing it, uh, doing that. So I don't think anyone's got too much to to worry about there, unless they're dead set about against ever using it. Um, but um, you know, the, you, you try and use the best of both worlds. Yeah, so it will just become like a norm over time, like with any new innovations it just takes time to adopt and accept the change yeah but also um but also it has to be flexible too um like one one of the important things is that um these technologies are increasingly easy to use and and very widespread in terms of their use but not everyone uh can either use it or has the technology to use it or has the money to use it and this is a really important point is that you know if you then turned around and said oh we've got a brilliant health service and it works on a smartphone and you have to use a smartphone you're automatically actually preventing some people who find it either difficult to use a smartphone or afford a smartphone aren't going to be able to get access to it and those people tend to have greater healthcare needs and social care needs anyway. So that's a really important thing that we have to remember and make sure that we, we make the best of the technology, but we don't prevent people who can't or can't at that time accessing the care that they need as well. And that can vary, you know, like one day you can be very, very tech happy to care for yourself. And then other times you might be ill and find it difficult. I, I often use the, my, my personal experience. Remember I mentioned earlier on that I was unfortunate enough to suffer from burnout and had to take time off. Now, you know, I'm the clinical digital health director at Babylon. I, 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 I pretty much love technology. But when I was at my most unwell, I, I couldn't be bothered with the technology at all. What I really needed at that point was the human input of my GP and my family, something that the machines couldn't do at that time. Over time, I started to figure it better, and then I could use some technologies to help me, but there was definitely a time when I couldn't. So if that happened to me, it will certainly happen to anyone else. So that's why we have to make sure that, you know, the technology's there, but there's always the ability to, to have that human touch, sometimes exclusively so, for some people. So what would you say are some of the challenges that you're experiencing in your space at Babylon? What are some of the main challenges? When you're working in a space uh, that's innovating at this pace, um, there's always going to be the challenge just that you're always going to be moving that little bit faster than other people sometimes are prepared for. And that's often described as kind of disruptive change. And um, disruption automatically sounds like a very, very sort of bad thing, particularly in something like health care. You know, you don't, want, you don't want something that's working beautifully to be disrupted. But the point is, it's not working beautifully, is it? It's like there, there's problems through there as well. So I definitely say that there, are, there is a need for change. Um, Pre-COVID, I would have highlighted the, the natural reluctance to change within the NHS 
which had been starting to change, but pre pre COVID was still there. You know, it was very very risk averse. People um, felt that it was you know the the challenges to sharing data. Everyone thought that was extremely difficult. And as you remember from earlier on, I was saying that data is the lifeblood of the ability to be able to do things for AI. But what happened with um, COVID is like seemingly overnight, because of the incredible need for us to be able to do stuff, a lot of the barriers just fell down. Now, that doesn't mean that we suddenly became like really like, who cares? Who uses data? All the same precautions were used, but that sort of resistance, those sort of final steps went. Um, and and that that change has been absolutely transformative. That's like made a, such an enormous difference. And, and when you look at some of the big trials that have taken place, the ability for us to be able to remotely monitor and care for people with COVID at home with their oxygen saturation monitors, all of that was made possible by this sudden change in appetite for risk. So, um, and that hopefully has helped answer some of the concerns that people had about adopting changes. So one of the challenges that we had was definitely that, and that's beginning to be answered as well. I think that's the, that's the first thing. Second th the second thing is about this sort of natural uh, kind of sort of reluctance to work hand in hand in the private sector with the public sector as well. I think people often cast that argument as like, you know, the NHS has to be either fully public or it's being privatized. It's, it's, it's either or. And it's, it's not just that. It's being privatized and turned into America. Um, now, America has some great features in terms of how healthcare is provided, but it's also got some features that aren't so good and, and they're, they're well known. As I said earlier on, like the rest of the world has lots of amazing healthcare models as well. Um, now, whilst I would never want the NHS to change from free at the point of care based on need and not the ability to pay. I think how we provide that um, can flex. And I also think that um, ultimately it comes down to getting the sort of the best the best people working on it. And what's nice about working with, with Babylon is that when you're working in the private sector like this, that there's a kind of appetite for risk and an appetite for change that sometimes you know, isn't present in the NHS uh, or public sector. So that's... Um, We've seen that change as well, but there's still some resistance there. Um, and then the and then one of the final things as well is that um, when you're w developing new technologies, it's really really important to get the you know that they're safe and that they're adequately regulated as well. And we want we absolutely want the the right regulation in place too because it really really helps. But one of the problems sometimes is that technology changes so fast that you create a sort of regulatory standard and then the technology has moved beyond it. So it's really, really like pleasing to see that the regulation, how things are regulated are beginning to be you know, to, to work with that, to to give guidance on how to deliver safe uh, and effective AI powered healthcare, for example. NHSX has brought out a good code of conduct there. NICE, which is the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, is bringing out good guidance on that as well. So it's fantastic to have that in place. It, it was a challenge when we didn't have those, but now that we have those in place, even though they're important standards to meet, it's much, much better to have those because we then say, right, no, we, we've achieved that. This is where we need to go to. Um, so even though there's been some challenges, they're all moving in the right direction for a number of different reasons. Yeah, I think one of the good things that's actually come out of this pandemic is that it's accelerated innovation and I don't think we can go backwards now. So it's really opened the doors to a lot of digital innovation, which like you mentioned, I think has broken down some of those barriers. And And I read a study by PwC that was looking at the adoption of digital healthcare. And I was actually surprised to see that 
the majority of people in the countries were willing to adopt these digital services where I thought there may be a bit of resistance but it looked like a lot of people were actually happy to see a doctor through an app or to do that pre-screening or symptom checking through an app so so I think it is heading in the right direction. Absolutely and also um I suppose the theme that I've come back to a couple of times in our, in our conversation is that it's about the sort of choice. It's like giving people a, a number of different choices. Anyone's healthcare, it's not all or nothing. It's not has to happen at the doctors or stay at home. It's, it's not that. There's lots of different things that require, some requires a lot of kind of doctor input or nurse input. Some requires no doctor nurse or, or nurse input. So a really good example might be if you're a person who has asthma and you are otherwise completely well, like really completely well, you're managing your asthma nicely. Um, do you do you really need to physically go in and see a doctor or a nurse once a year or, you know, to to be examined? If they don't physically examine you, they just ask you a couple of questions and then reauthorize everything. Do you need to go in physically, if you run out of medicine at short notice, you know, physically go in and, and yeah, again, play the game with the phone calls in the morning to get that prescription? No, you don't. So, so if everything's otherwise okay, I just want to be able to have, like, order my medicines as needed. Or better still, to be have the medicine sent out to me based on tracking how I'm using them. So I never have to think about it. It's just, I've always got my inhalers available when I need them. Uh, and it keep I'm able to report my symptoms at home and it will just make sure that I'm in the best health. If there's any sign of things getting worse or if there's like a pollution change or something like that in the, you know, like air quality, um, it might flag that I need to take more attention. You know, I can manage my care perfectly well but there will be times when I really want to see the nurse and talk about how how I can better manage my health care. And it might just need an email, you know, let let me decide that. Um, and, and that way I can optimize my care in the time that I have myself. A, a really, really brilliant statistic I use often is um, like doctors and nurses will often think about people as coming to the doctor very often. So imagine you're a person that goes to the doctor once a week, every week of the year. So that's like you know, 10 minutes at the doctor's or the nurse's time, 10 minutes every single week. But they'll think that that's extremely high level of use. You know, that's quite high compared to the normal population. And imagine all the time that it would take for the person to go into the doctor and come out. Now, that amount of time is less than 0.1% of that person's year. It's a tiny amount of their year. And the tiny amount of the time that they are dealing with their health problems or their illnesses and so on. Um, so we should be allowing them to care for themselves in that time, you know, because that's what's going to make the difference for them. Not, you know, not coming in once or twice a year, because that's a tiny percentage of the time. But being able to, but, but being there when they really need them, that's what you need to do. It's like when a person needs to be seen, let's get them seen quickly. You know, the rest of the time, if they can be managed in an automated way or in a way they're happy with or with, you know, uh, you know, by sending messages, that's great, because then, the, the, the theory is that people's health will improve and we can help identify things sooner, reduce the cost, that kind of thing. And what are some of the exciting things that you're working on right now? What are the new opportunities? Are you able to share any of those? Yeah. 
Well, well, two of the areas that are really exciting to sort of mention, as far as I can share, is uh, the first is that I haven't had an opportunity to talk about the work that we, I've talked a little bit about the work that we do internationally. But one of the areas that's really exciting is in uh, Rwanda, uh, where Babylon has a branch called Babel, uh, and we provide primary care services to people in Rwanda. Uh, and what's really interesting about that is that uh, we in Rwanda, there's a population of, I think it's around about 14 or 15 million people, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and uh, there's the actually, we were talking about smartphones, the number of smartphone users is actually pretty pretty low, but the number of feature phone users um, is quite high. And feature phones are the sort of phones that you had pre-iPhone days, you know, that... Um, so there's quite good network coverage. There's quite good coverage of the use of these phones. So what we do with Babel is that we've got essentially a remote care service where through voice calls and the ability to send text messages, we're able to provide primary care to people that might otherwise find it very, very difficult to obtain care. You know, they may have to travel a long distance. They may have to wait an awful long time. And what's really exciting about uh, the work in Babylon, uh, in Babel in Rwanda, is that they've already started to provide remote care for people with COVID. In, in Rwanda. Um, we're looking at implementing our artificial intelligence there to help support the call center staff to help care for their patients as well and, and be able to sort of like provide population level care as well. Um, there's a real appetite for innovation inside Rwanda and not just Rwanda, but in other low and middle income countries as well that we're, that we're working with. So that's a really exciting area to look at. And then the... Um, and then the other area that we're looking at, um, and this is something that's exemplified by our partnership with the Royal Wolverhampton Trust here in the UK, but also some of the work that we're doing in the US is increasing looking at integrated care. It's not just about care in general practice, but also how that person's care then moves to hospital or social care services or anything like that. Integrating everything is the really exciting uh, next step. Um, so I described all the different kind of tools in our toolkits, you know, symptom checker, health check, monitor, the ability to be able to sort of have video consultations and so on. Well, if you start bringing those all together and the data starts being shared between them all, um, and that's something that we're, you know, we're, we're really well placed to do at Babylon because we, you know, we have all these tools in our, in our toolkit. Um, then the work that, you know, the interaction you have with one part helps improve the other service. And then the, the stuff that you do at home can then inform what happens when you go to hospital. And then we can provide augmented care for you if you go for an operation when you come back home. So that's the next big step is this kind of push towards greater integration that will work not only here in the UK, but around the world. And uh, if we can get that right, then I think we're going to be really moving towards some pretty impressive health outcomes for people. Yeah, so it's just that end-to-end -end healthcare rather than silos or having individual apps it's just bringing it all together as a complete package absolutely and um and, and i suppose remember when you're a patient you, you don't want to be like putting your kind of gp head on in one place and then and then have to tell your story again in a hospital and then tell your story again to the person you see in the community you know you want the data to flow with you you want people to be you talked earlier on about that continuity. What is it about the continuity that you really enjoyed? It was the fact that, that doctor knew you. They had they had this sort of continuous record. Now, um, where we can still manage that, that's great. But it's we want to be able to make it that any interaction you have has that continuity. You know, the important information shared. So if you've told one doctor one thing, when you see the nurse down the line, you should be rightly expect them to know and not have to ask again. That's, you know... That seems simple, but and it's remarkably tricky to do. So 
you have this vast amount of data, right? What would you say have been your key findings on all of this data? Do you see any red flags or are people's health generally improving here in the UK? Is it getting worse? What are the sort of trends you are seeing based on the data that you have? Yeah. So, so I mean, the, the first thing to say, yeah, we we have we we hold the patient's data, you know, securely in a way that's um, compliant with the the whichever country we're in. There's certain laws and regulations that we do that as well, and and how the data is used is always done with the person's person's consent. So, um, we use it for providing their care and services. I think that within that, there's a couple of interesting insights. I suppose, you know, we've been operating since 2013. We've been doing so, you know, we've been um, doing. Some of our products like the Symptom Checker and Health Checker have been around since 2018 or thereabouts. So actually, that's a relatively short period of time. And uh, to, you know, to be getting very important trend changes just that you're uh, suggesting just there. But what we did do, um, I think it was back in 2019, there was some interesting stuff that we put out uh, in partnership with uh, one of the London papers, looking at different, uh, how risk factors change around London, you know, which areas tend to pursue the more riskier behaviours. And that was quite interesting. Uh, I think the other um, thing that was very interesting to watch, and a paper was published a little bit earlier on this year, was uh, about what we'd seen with regards to COVID-19. Um, so when COVID first hit, one of the first piece of works we did, put piece of work we did, was to change our symptom checker to allow people to have a better understanding of what their risk of developing, you know, what, where their symptoms were COVID related and what to do uh, or not. And what's interesting about that is that we were able to, from that, um, see some information about when the waves were happening, you know, as people started to become unwell, you can see an uptick in the number of symptoms. Now, this is something that's, you know, we, we haven't specifically, you know, we don't specifically look for or act on this, but it's something that companies like Zoe, um, you know, the Zoe app, which is out there, um, has been doing very well. In fact, it, it, does, it does such a fine job that it actually can lead ahead of the testing. So collecting this data has already given us some really, really good insights in dealing with the pandemic. And Going forward, we're hoping that what we'll be able to do is, you know, be able to use the the patient's information to identify those parts of the, our patient population that would benefit from certain interventions. This sort of ability to what we call stratify the risk, identify the people at the highest risk, and then provide them with preemptive care uh, compared to those people that are otherwise well. I think those are the those are the those are the things that are going to work very well going forward. Yeah, and. On data privacy and the ethical side of things, I think we can't talk about AI without covering some of the ethical issues around AI and data collection. So I understand the data empowers the patient and also empowers the doctor to provide the best service, but could that potentially backfire on the patient in the future in terms of maybe healthcare insurance if I have certain symptoms or a medical history where I may develop a chronic illness in the future, could that actually be of detriment to me, even though in the short term it might provide me the benefits, but in the long term it's actually not beneficial? So I think it's that fine balance between being open and transparent and also the impact it could have on you financially. Yeah, oh no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right that data is very powerful. Um, and, um, you know, obviously what you want is with healthcare, um, you want the person who's providing your care to have all the information they need to do what they need to do at that time. 
Like that that's kind of the perfect situation. So because then what you're saying is you're saying that, you know, I'm consenting. You know, I am happy for them to have access to the data that is needed. So it's, you know, they're not having too much data. They're having the right amount of data at this time. I don't want Dr. Keith to have access to my record forever and a day if he's just seeing me in A&E, you know. So there's lots of different com components or characteristics of data uh, that um, you might want to consider when you're saying, well, what are we going to use it for or not? So I think that... What you have to do is you have to adhere to principles of using, making sure that data is held securely and safely, um, that patient identifiable information, you know, the more sensitive of this is, you know, you're particularly careful with, that you're clear with people what data you're collecting, you're clear with people why you're collecting it and what you're going to use it for. And also, you're clear with people if it's going to, if there's any use of it in an anonymous way, as in take the patient identifiable information out, what it's then going to be used for. Because, for example, uh, one of the things that we do with our app is that we ask people if they're happy for us to use the data to improve the product. You know, we're going to collect data to help with what you need right now, but are you also happy? To, so that we use this to then improve the training of the product to move it forward. And people can opt into or opt out of that as well. Um, then the final thing might be, you know, are you happy for this to be used in research, you know, for the purposes of publication and so on. So you make clear what data is being used, why it's being used, um, and, um, you know, try and make it granular, but also trying to make it, do it in a way that people can understand. I mean, I think we've all seen terms and conditions like from you know, iTunes lasting pages and pages and pages. You have to try and make it, understandable and that's a, that's a difficult thing because some of the concepts are quite complicated you know you've just been talking about a few of them just there about the future impact of putting your information and and, and who gets access to it so it's important for companies like babylon and, and and anyone who's holding your data to make sure that we comply with all the local regulations so here in the uk it's data protection act and gdpr and so on um but also doing so in a way that um actually realizes the value of the data you know you could you could make it safe by not using any data at all, but then you're not going to get any benefit from it. So, it's about having a sort of honest conversation with people, so they're clear as to what it's being used for. And what would you say is your vision for the future of healthcare? If I gave you unlimited resources, <laughs> autonomy to do whatever you want, if I was king for a day, kind of yeah. thing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what um, would you do? I like um, what there's kind of two answers to this there's a sort of like where we're going and then there's my kind of like you know sort of fantasy idea but um the the, the essentially it's having like true interoperability of the data that the data absolutely flows where it needs to it's secure it's controlled by the user but um in my dream situation uh, me as a patient right now if i wanted to could take my tablet and browse my record, see any part of it, like just have a look at it and like add things if I needed to, mark things for correction, all that sort of stuff. I, I'd like to be able to do that so I could better understand it. And not just in a raw form. I just don't want to see the sort of all the data. I want to see it kind of curated. And that's where AI can be really helpful. It can take all this data and then convert it into like proper knowledge that I can act on. So I'd like that for myself, but I'd also like it for the doctors and nurses that care for me. And in fact, I'd like the the digital side of things to be the kind of third person in a three-way conversation. There's me, there's the healthcare person, and then there's the AI, you know, and between us, we get the best information to provide my care. Uh, I want it to, 
I want to be alerted of things that need action early. I want to minimize the amount of time I spend feeding it, you know, like punching in data. I'd like a lot of it to happen just automatically. Um, I want to be able to, as much as possible, forget about what I need to do and be supported in living a healthier life. So the technology that we're trying to build, and, and I think everyone's trying to strive, uh, strive towards, um, will help that. And if we can do that, but we can do so in a way that, make, that is you know, bias-free, accessible to everyone from the poorest people in the lowest income countries through to the richest person elsewhere. I think that's what I would like to sort of take that kind of worry and stress out of it uh, and work towards it. That's what I ideally want. And then, it, and then the ne if you want to put the next layer on top of it, I want all that to happen in virtual reality. <laughs> I, want that, I want that all to happen in a kind of immersive technology thing because I'm a big fan of VR and AR. And um, I, I, I don't want to be looking at it through a tablet. I want to be interacting physically with that. I want to be able to walk through the spaces. Um, that's maybe a topic for another day. But um, that's, that's something that I think is we're just beginning to see just now. And I, I'd like that. I'd very much like that. And I like to end the podcast episodes with a question. What can we all do from today to better serve ourselves and also to serve others? Uh, kindness. This is the one that I come back to. You know. So I said that I got burnt out. And I got burnt out because I stopped being kind to myself and that stopped me being kind to others. Um, so kindness is really important. Um, and it's easy to say and hard to do. Um, if you really had to boil it down, be kind to yourself. Um, people, like it's been a really, really difficult year. For I, I've been very, very fortunate in how I've got through it, but for many people, it's been exceptionally difficult. Um, so we have to realize that. And if we want to help others, we first have to help ourselves. So be kind to ourselves, you know, forgive ourselves some of the things that we haven't done, you know, that we wanted to do in this time. And once we start with that, like, and then extend that to the people that are around you. I, I, I remember saying to someone at the start of the pandemic that one of the things that we're going to have to get really good at is forgiving people over the next, well, I only said 12 months at that point. It's turned out longer. And um, I, 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 it's still right. And I find myself sometimes on social media seeing something daft, you know, person not wearing a mask or being an anti-vaxxer or something. And I'm a, a hair away. I'm a hair away from writing something crummy. Um, and I have to remind myself that I have to try and be kind and I have to forgive people because I have no idea what has brought that person to it. Now, there are, of course, limits to that. You know, if a person's going to be absolutely horrible, then, you know, all bets are off. But still bear that in mind. So I'd say if you want to help uh, and everyone, start by being kind to yourself and then extend it further. I love that answer because... I think you can serve others if you have that right frame of mind and your energy kind of radiates. And yeah, it's contagious. Yeah. Well, that's it. So there's a friend of mine. I've got a good friend, Manish Janaja, who's online as a futurist. And uh, he, he always describes it as light. He says, light reflects light. And um, I think that's a nice way of putting it. So yeah, like they do on the planes, if the oxygen masks come down, you put your own one on first. It's the same thing here. Thanks, Keith, for this episode. Really appreciate your time. And I'm sure there's a lot of interesting insights for all of our listeners. Yeah, well, I hope so. And uh, yeah, that's great. And uh, always happy to interact with people if they just, uh, I'm on Twitter, at Keith Grimes, if you want to do that. And uh, uh, yeah, if anyone has any brilliant insights they want to share with me or questions, just ping them my way.
Thanks, Keith. No problem. It's great to see how AI is helping drive digital healthcare, which is essential for making healthcare accessible to everyone. Also, some of the initiatives like Babel in Rwanda demonstrates how we can use existing infrastructure and devices to provide healthcare services to countries that may not have a high smartphone adoption rate yet. I think this is a really exciting space and what Babylon Health is doing is a great example of how digital healthcare can enhance the experience for a patient. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit subscribe so you can get a notification when a new episode is released. Also share it with your friends and family or whoever you think would be interested in this episode. I would really appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to reach out to myself, you can find me on Instagram. I'll leave the info in the show notes and I'll see you all in the next episode.